0: Welcome to Faith in Politics, JPIT's podcast. I'm Meg. And I'm Rodney. And welcome to the April episode. JPIT is a joint public issues team made up of the Baptist Union, the United Reformed Church, the Methodist Church, and the Church of Scotland working together for peace and justice.
1: And this month we have an interview with Miriam Cates,
0: the MP for Penistone and Stockbridge up in South Yorkshire.
1: Yeah, so Miriam speaks to us about what levelling up means, the Conservatives' levelling up agenda the abuse MP's face. We actually recorded this, well, Meg recorded an interview with her during the week of the policing bill that caused so much controversy, so it was good to hear her thoughts on that. She also spoke about how she entered into politics and how much her faith means to her.
0: Yeah, and it was really great when I got to speak to her to hear about her fairly unusual path into politics. As Rodney said, it was something that was very influenced, well, entirely influenced by her faith, so it was really interesting to hear about the journey that she's been on. And after that, Rodney and I are going to reflect a bit on what levelling up means, both practically and from a faith perspective.
1: We've recently published an elections briefing for the upcoming elections in May, revolving around the Scottish Parliament, the Senate elections, the London Mayoral elections, the Assembly elections, and the Police and Crown Commission and the local elections. So check it out on our JPIT website.
0: Brilliant. While you were doing that, I was counting on my hands all the different elections because there's so So many, many. making sure you didn't miss any. But you got them perfectly, so well done. That's coming up on May 6th, so make sure you check out our resources to get clued up and see how your church can get involved.
1: Make sure you vote too.
0: Yes. The register for vote deadline's gone now, but yeah, make sure you vote and you know what you're voting for. JPIT also published um, a blog about the new plan for immigration that's recently been published which includes some guidance for responding to that consultation. So if that's something that's interesting to you or to anyone you know, make sure you check that out and find out how you can be engaging with that. And let's now jump into the interview. So thanks so much for joining us, Miriam. You are the MP for Penniston and Stockbridge, which is in South Yorkshire, and were elected in 2019. Before you were elected in 2019, your professional background was largely in like the STEM industries,
2: wasn't it? Yes, yes. Well, I trained as a teacher, having done a genetics degree at university. Um, So I worked for some time as a secondary school teacher. Uh, I took a career break when my children were quite small um, and I started working in my husband's business. He's got a tech business that uh, does various different software platforms. Um, and then I was planning on returning uh, to, to being a teacher once my youngest started school, but I ended up in politics. That was going to be my next question. Was that a plan?
0: Was, were you always intending to end up in politics or was that something that kind of came out of the blue for you?
2: Well, yes and no, really. So I became very interested in politics as a child. Um, I'm not sure why. And Nobody in my family is is political, really. Nobody you know campaigning or member of political party very much floating voters um but i got hold of an old long wave radio when i was 11 and in the absence of anything else to do you know before whatsapp youtube etc i uh, listened to the today program westminster hour the moral maze um and i just became very um interested in democracy i suppose it wasn't part of political but fascinated by how parliament works how debating works um, by how, you know, issues were, were um, ideas came about and, and change was brought. Um, but I always kind of thought that if I was ever to get involved in politics, um, God would have to make that happen. The opportunity would have to present itself because I certainly didn't know how to become involved. I didn't know how political parties worked. So, no, it wasn't a, a kind of plan. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it certainly was on my radar ever since I, I was was very young.
0: Brilliant. And so you've already touched on the importance of your faith in what basically leading to you become an MP. How now you are an MP, would you say your faith has impacted your politics and how you go about your job?
2: Yeah, great question. So I think on a a personal level, um, you know, in politics, you're pulled in all directions all the time. And, um, you know, the expectations are enormous. Um, You know, I get 300 emails a day from constituents. um, You know, they've got colleagues who want me to do things and you know speeches to make in parliament and all these kind of things and i think navigating where do i i can't do it all i can't succeed at all where do i put my time and so i think you know just holding on to things like seek first the kingdom and uh, trusting the holy spirit to show me you know where to to put my attention is really important because otherwise it very quickly becomes overwhelming um and then a piece of advice that was given to me by Fiona Bruce fantastic christian mp um, before I became an MP, actually, when I was a candidate, was remember you're doing everything for an audience of one, um, and I think that's so important because it's so tempting to, um, you know, orientate yourself to pleasing your constituents, to pleasing the media, to pleasing the whips, to pleasing colleagues, to you know, trying to um, impress ministers, you know, all those different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, trying to remember that that you know the person you're working for and serving at the end of the day is God. Um, you know, I think that's a really important check um, on, you know, on, on integrity. And then I think in terms of the issues that I get involved in in, in Parliament, then faith is a big part of that. And I think um, so. So one of the issues I'm getting very involved in is family, um, because we don't have great family policy in this country at all. Um, And I think the value of family and of parenting has been almost completely forgotten. Um, Parenting is a problem for the nuclear family. That's how our culture sees it. And we solve that problem by giving free childcare. Well, actually, I think that completely diminishes the importance of, of parenting. And actually, for most of us, how we parent will have far more impact on society and the economy than anything else we do. Doesn't matter how good you are at your job. Uh, you know, how you bring up your children will will have more, leave more of a legacy. Um, And I don't think that's just about the nuclear family at all. I think uh, the extended family, the community, the state have all got a role to play, but it's been forgotten. Um, And, you know, I very much want to bring that back into uh, the public arena, really, to talk about parenting. And I think that absolutely comes from faith. At the end of the day, God is our father, you know, our relationship to him is as our children. And that's mirrored in um, parenting relationships on earth. And and they are so important. And we see what happens when parenting goes wrong. And sadly, it has gone very wrong in a lot of cases. So I, you know, very much see one of my jobs in parliament is to to bring back uh, parenting on the agenda. So I think that's, you know, I think that's a social justice issue that everybody from all sides can get behind. But it's how you frame it um, that's going to matter.
0: So as you mentioned before, Sheffield is somewhere that's traditionally been more red and has you're the first Conservative MP to represent your seat. Um, and you were elected, or the first year of being an MP has obviously been quite an interesting one in many ways um, with the pandemic. What has the experience been both as you know, the first Tory to represent your area and as a new MP in a pandemic? Has that been something that's, well, obviously it's thrown up a lot of challenges. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've you know, I've never done it before, so I can't, <laughs> I guess I can't, um, comment too much, but, um, I think I love meeting people face to face because I think when you get talking to people, um, and people realize that you know, I hopefully am in this for the right reasons and I genuinely want to bring positive change and represent people, then I think that breaks down barriers and people who perhaps, uh, you know, did have the view that there's no way a Tory can ever get in here or something like that you know they quickly um y- you know human relationships work better face to face don't they um but you know on an from a kind of more negative point of view I and certainly talking to my colleagues in similar seats first-time conservatives I mean the level of abuse and um you know hatred and things like that, it's been horrendous I've got to be honest but absolutely awful and it is tends to be small numbers of people very highly coordinated and very vocal but it is it's tough to deal with and I think um, you know all MPs get abused but from what I can tell people in safe seats who've been in that safe seat for ages it's just not quite such an organized thing um but on the other hand um you know having an MP from a governing party is should be beneficial to an area you know I do have direct access to ministers I can raise things at a higher level more easily. So I think a lot of people do see the benefits of that. But yeah, it hasn't been easy, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to break the stereotypes.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. So in this month's budget that just came out, your or Stockbridge, which is one of the towns in your area, got um, just over 24 million pounds in the town's fund, which is all part of the government's plans to level up. Um, and you've spoken a lot about regional disparity in parliament and kind of the imbalance especially for post-industrial towns. I think for a lot of people, this idea of levelling up is something that's thrown about a lot, but maybe they don't fully understand. What do you see that as? And what would you see that meaning for your constituency, were they to be levelled up as it were?
2: Yeah, so um, like you say, it's probably become a bit of an overused phrase. And I think um, the, the basic principle is that we are an incredibly over-centralised country. I mean, we are the, one of the most centralised countries in, in the Western world, and I don't think that's a healthy thing at all. And um, for the last few decades, wealth and opportunity have been focused in London the southeast, um, and the rest of the country has, has suffered as a result, especially outside of big cities, which, you know, have seen a lot of investment. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a fairness issue to that, especially as towns like Stocksbridge and Penistone, and, you know, in the north, um, are very much responsible for the wealth that we see today uh, from the industrial revolution onwards. Um, but also, it's not healthy, is it? It's much healthier to, to spread opportunity and talent and skills and investment uh, all the way around the country. So I think that's, you know, that's one aspect. And I think if you don't live, if you live in London uh, and have never really been outside of London, I don't think many people have a real comprehension of just how different life is in the north, you know, and the, uh, the the example I always use is if you live in Croydon and want to travel into central London for work there are 20 trains an hour and it takes about 20 minutes if you live in Penistone and you want to go to Sheffield same distance it's one service an hour and it takes an hour and um, so the difference in opportunity and connectivity is just huge so a big part of levelling up is about making sure that infrastructure and government investment is more fairly spread Um, But I think it's much more than that. I think it's uh, about a social levelling up as well. And, you know, we have lost a lot of the infrastructure that people used to rely on. So let's say a steel town like Stocksbridge, the steel works didn't just employ people. uh, It provided community centres, it built the football club, even the golf club. Um, And then we've lost mass church attendance and we've lost, um, you know, an understanding of extended family. Um, And I think people who have, um, you know, who who have more wealth, let's say, um, cover up for that. I'm not saying, you know, their lives are any uh, easier, but it certainly covers up some of that um, deprivation. Um, And actually levelling up to me is about restoring that social infrastructure. And that's not going to look the same as it did in the past. But I think it's very much about community solutions, Um, people getting alongside other people. I've got a brilliant example in my constituency, a group called Working Win, who help people who are struggling to stay in work or find work because of health problems. And it's not a tick box exercise. It is one person getting alongside another, mentoring them, being on the end of the phone 24 hours a day and just encouraging them. And to me, that's a very Christian model of of friendship and, and companionship and community. And That is how we're going to level up at the end of the day. It's not trains and buses. It's helping people to help people.
0: That's really interesting because I think a lot of the concerns I've heard about levelling up is it is too focused or can be focused regionally rather than on the individual. And you can get very focused on, you know, our area is doing economically better, but that doesn't always translate, as you say, for individuals. So how do you see, you know, the money that Stocksbridge has received? How will that go to, you know, directly helping individuals rather than, kind of a facade of the area as a whole is doing better, but individuals don't see that.
2: Well, the, the, the key part of the Towns Fund is it's very much a bottoms up, a bottom-up approach. And that that wasn't very well reported. Um, because actually the towns were chosen back in summer 2019. So we've been devising our bid. We submitted our final bid a couple of months ago, and then basically the bid was announced as successful on um, budget day. So we very much knew, you know, we didn't know it was going to be announced that day, but we knew it was coming. Um and we've spent the last year as a community putting together that bid, and we've chosen the projects and costed them that we want. Uh, and that's what we're getting the money for so it's very much the community saying what we need rather than the government telling us what we're going to have so it's a mixture of projects so there are things to improve the high street and improve transport which I think are very important but there's also um, youth projects sports project well-being projects things to kind of um, raise the general aspiration of the town even a post-16 hub so there's no sixth form provision at all uh, in the area and we're going to get it hopefully so um, you know that, that kind of I, I love this approach uh, offer some central money but get the community to work out how to spend it i think that is absolutely the right approach for leveling up because you know i think we're fed up of things being done to us aren't we you know in in these areas um so you know i think it's a fresh new approach and i hope it's very successful
0: brilliant um so on a different topic you mentioned before um that a lot of politicians get a lot of abuse especially you know new politicians And I noticed you don't have a Twitter account. And I wondered if if that was part of it, especially as a female MP, we've seen in the news that they're Mm. subject to a massive amount of abuse online. Is that something that has been a challenge since you become an MP?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, it's it's awful, I have to say. And I did delete my Twitter account because I was getting so much abuse. Um, and I just kind of thought well if I'm not in the room I can't be shouted at can I so and I personally can't stand Twitter I think it's it's revolting I think it's driven down our level of conversation and I think it just um you know entices people to be vile to each other and you know we weren't created to communicate with each other in however many characters were we you know that's conversation and relationship has far more nuance than that allows for and it's not surprising that it leads to such polarization and you know I would love to see the end of anonymous accounts to be honest I'd love to see the, the thing banned but I don't think that's going to happen um yeah I mean it's uh, it's a toxic place isn't it and um MPs get a lot of abuse and I think part of it is the the expenses scandal I think uh, you know obviously, it was well before my time really um saw a decline in how people respect MPs um you know i think and again a lot of that was badly reported but there was a lot of truth in it too um and i also think people think that they own their mp and you know i get a lot of emails from people saying i voted for, voted for you you therefore must vote this way in parliament and of course it doesn't work like that because i've got seventy-seven thousand constituents etc um but i think the worst thing is that you is when lies get spread about you but you can't address them so quite often have particular people on my facebook page saying i write to you and you never respond and you you know we go through our software and we see that we've responded to every single email we've solved a problem for them but they're still saying in public they want people to think that i you know i'm not representing my And that, you know that's really how do you how do you deal with that and i think at the end of the day it, it, it does come back to faith it's you know god's god's my defender you know i've got to just do you know work the hardest I can, the best I can to represent people, and then just trust God to, to do the rest. Really, but it got to me an awful lot more a year ago. But I, I think I've developed a thick skin, and also, you know, some of these things, you know, I can laugh about with my team, some of them. But, um, but it is, it is a massive problem, and you know, a lot of female MPs have had so much worse than me. You know, um, it, yeah, it's horrendous, and I think, I. I, I don't. I, I think social media has co- caused a coarsening of our national di- discourse, and we're seeing um, we're seeing the result of that.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It is. Yeah. it's Sad to see, isn't it? And so, as a female MP, the Commons is the most um, female it's ever been, which is brilliant. But it's still not that female. There are thirty three percent of MPs are women, and then twenty four percent of Conservative MPs are women. Um, is that something that you found particular? both barriers and um, advantages? Is there kind of a strong sense of community or have you found it an alienating experience as a kind of female MP?
2: Um, No, I haven't found it alienating at all. I mean, the House of Commons is actually a very welcoming place. And I think um, colleagues of both sexes have really gone the extra mile to help new MPs settle in. And I, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I have to say, I haven't experienced sexism in the way that women of a previous generation do. I don't think being a woman has been any barrier at all to anything I've wanted to do. And I certainly don't feel it is as an MP. Um, And I don't... Uh, you know I, I think sexism exists don't get me wrong and i but I think it's it's the private insidious sexism that is a massive problem um in our public realm I think we've made enormous progress um in inequality um but I don't believe in numerical targets I don't you know the whole point of representative democracy is that anyone can represent anyone else I think it's important to have people with all different life experiences round the decision-making table and I certainly think there aren't enough mums of school aged children in parliament. And you know, there's a good reason for that, but you know, it, we need more because uh, you have to understand how family life and children and schools work if you're gonna make uh, good decisions. Um, but I think we get too hung up on these, uh, on these um, numbers. And actually, the real divide in, this, in, in Britain is the class divide. Um, you know, you, you, you can find rich people from all different and well-educated people, from every sex, every background, every ethnic minority and every religion. But actually, how many people in the House of Commons ha- come from disadvantaged backgrounds and come from northern backgrounds? You know, it's not enough. Um so I think we get hung up on this this gender equality sometimes um and it's maybe not helpful but I don't you know it's it's no disadvantage being a woman in politics I don't think
0: yeah that's really interesting thank you for sharing and so obviously this week again for women in politics has been a particularly or last week it's been a particularly um contentious one and you know Westminster has seen a lot of riot well not rioting protesting yeah. um, be careful I feel like all the words are being yeah careful, yeah isn't it Um, And obviously this week you were voted in support of the police crime um, sentencing and courts bill, which has received a lot of media attention generally in many different ways. Um, You've already spoken about the fact that social media makes discussion and debate on these topics really difficult. How have you or how would you respond to criticism on bills like that that say maybe the Commons is out of touch with the experiences of a lot of women, especially in legislation like that, in the light of the events of the last few weeks?
2: Well, I think, again, it's just a, this is a myth busting exercise. Um, you know, obviously, the murder of Sarah Everard is absolutely horrific, um, you know, and it's, it's um, catalyzed an outpouring of, of women's experiences of public abuse, private abuse that absolutely needs to be listened to. Um, but, you know, this bill is a bill that has was on the statute book and planned before those events. It's a wide ranging criminal bill with all sorts of different powers that essentially put a lot of manifesto commitments into practice with an awful lot of um, new laws that make sense to a lot of people like strengthening um, protection of emergency workers and all sorts of things, and including longer sentences for rapists and child murderers and those kind of things. Um, And I find the accusation that the bill doesn't relate to women rather odd because it's a bill for people and women are people. Um, and the crimes that are committed against women will be prosecuted in this bill and the domestic abuse bill which is a landmark piece of legislation has nearly finished route through, through parliament and will become law and that's almost entirely focused on, on women's safety so again I think sadly it's been picked up by the media misrepresented um, and used to say the government's out of touch and I think there'd be nothing worse than the government rushing to make legislation in haste to respond to this instead of listening and really thinking about what needs to be done um, and on the protest uh, part of it again it, you know there's been a lot of fake news i have to say because uh, at the moment all these offenses are already offenses it's just that they're in case law uh, common law um and the um the law commission has recommended that we put them on the statute book because you know that's just sensible um so these are already offenses they're just going on the statute book and actually at the moment the maximum sentence for some of these public nuisance offenses is, is life once they go onto the statute books it'll be 10 years um so again it's you know it's been taken out of all proportion and all context um, you know and i think it it's right for the government to recognize the national mood it's right to reopen this conversation it's right for the prime minister to do Things like um, doubling the safer street spans and all those things that can things that can be done quickly to to improve safety. But if we're going to make long term change, quick changes to um, you know ready drafted legislation it is not the answer, and that would just be that would be a PR exercise, and that would be wrong. Um, and actually, what the government needs to do much, you know, we need to think about this much more intelligently because clearly there's an issue about street safety. Um, although I don't think, you know, you're never going to solve this 100% by legislation or prosecution because there are always going to be criminals out there who, whatever the law is, are going to find a way to attack. And that's a sad truth. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try as hard as we can to design out crime. Of course we should. But what I'm far more worried about is the abuse and violence that goes on in private. And I think you know, most people would agree that that is where the majority of abuse against women happens. That is a matter of um, our cultural attitudes. Where do boys get these attitudes? It's from the home. You know, by the time you're 16, you've spent 86% of your time at home and only 14% at school. So it doesn't matter how good your anti-sexism training is at school, it isn't going to solve the problem. Um, and the link between fatherlessness um, or, and um, engaging in violent abuse is just, you know, incred- incredible. So the are the, the here is strengthening families. Um, it's, uh, you know, more streetlights, more cameras, brilliant. Yes, we need them, but it's, it's a drop in the ocean compared to what we need to do uh, in the home.
1: So that was Meg's interview there with Miriam, in which they speak on a range of issues and really key and interesting issues. I think what was particularly interesting was the clarity. Meg tried to seek regarding what levelling up means and the whole levelling up agenda that we heard from the government from the last election to now. And I think it was important because one thing we do need in politics is clarity. And we've seen that in recent years, that words are so powerful. um, We just are coming out of Brexit, let's say. And we know the power of Brexit with just three simple words, take back control. And it was a slogan that many people said, oh, I'm voting because I wanna take back control, which is fine. But I think when you would have your conversations with people and ask them, what does it mean when you say take back control? There tended not to be much on the surface. And we have to be in a place where we're dealing with detail and not just dealing with slogans But we can have slogans, as long as we're turning those slogans into strategy, I'm sure everyone would agree. But my general understanding, which might be quite limited because of the lack of clarity, is that I believe the government is looking and promising to spread wealth to left behind towns and communities and improve the education and employment prospects of those living in them. But then... I've also been confused at one point because I've heard some people say "Oh, levelling up is about levelling up one's life chances is about improving infrastructure. I've heard this about improving productivity in the north. I've heard this about tackling the long term health inequalities. So there's a whole range of things which I'm sure we could get into. But I find that that lack of clarity has probably been one of the reasons as to why. agenda hasn't really gone far it's not been much of a success added to that there's no agreed metrics for assessing what areas are left behind and how we necessarily track the government's progress and then we also have to deal with the questions about whether leveling up is really about the areas at all because if we look at it there's a number of individual metrics one can use like employment income well-being that obviously needed to determine whether the government is evening out inequalities and within these metrics if you're looking at it from an individual basis you get a lot of different answers based on different questions you're asking so then it really raises the question whether the leveling up agenda is more about geographical areas or about people and I think one could argue that it should be more focused about people but I found it interesting that on Miriam really spoke about how she sees levelling up as not only just being an economic agenda but also a social element towards it and I think it it explains why Miriam worked so closely with Danny Kruger on the levelling up our communities report at the request of the Prime Minister and was looking at this social covenant and I think it was a great report because it showed how this leveling up agenda really isn't broad because it touched on the family it touched on faith it touched on our communities and obviously at jpit we represent a host of churches it's key key and interesting to find out what is the role of the church in the leveling up agenda and i think um danny kruger's social covenant recognizes that faith communities are deeply rooted in the heart of local communities as well as the national level and that um, faith networks and relationships are able to provide that resilience and practical opportunities for those in need. And it's interesting because it sets a relationship whereby the church is working with the government now. And I think this pandemic has showed that the church needs to think strategically about how we show God's love to the world in the months and years ahead. And what I liked really about the report was the recognition, because I've always felt that when we're looking about building alliances and rebuilding communities, the church is always seen from government, in my opinion, as a danger to social cohesion. And it's really good to know that the church is actually brought into these discussions i think the archbishop one time said too often studies into social or community cohesion place religion as a problem that needs to be solved or as an irrelevance that needs to be ignored so when we're brought into these conversations it's great and i think the church has so much power and so many great assets to aid social cohesion from its buildings to hold community events to its networks that bring people together from different backgrounds to its leadership and not just leadership in terms of faith but just encouraging and nurturing young church leaders. They have power, obviously, to bring people into a conversational space so that convening power is there from the church. So the church has so much to bring to the table in terms of aiding our social cohesion and if we look the church from its infancy has always had a long history of caring for communities in crisis and this COVID-19 pandemic has been no different Um, we've seen such an immense response from the church in numerous ways and i think we've shown that we can be there for our communities and have an active role to play for us like i said i think it's a time for us to think strategically about how we as the church show God's love to the world in the months and years ahead. And it really does start with our thinking and how we frame our thinking. And I think it's important that we understand that within this, we're gonna be working with the government. And I find Danny's words key. He could have said contract, we have the social contract theory, but he said social covenant. And I think one of the challenges we as a church have had with the relationship with the state is that the relationship always tends to be very transactional. Whereas the word covenant speaks to something relational. Like it implies an agreement between like two entities within some relationship. And I think it's important that in the way we frame our thinking, sorry, that um we understand that we're moving towards a place with the government whereby we can realise certain common goals. And I also think that it's important that as we engage in levelling up our communities that we don't forget our mission, we remember it. I think the church always should have confidence in its own mission. We're tasked with making Jesus Christ present in the world and not just to like win a government grant. And I think as Christians, we're called to live out that radical transformation brought by the power of God in our lives that compels us to not only serve others but serve our communities as and especially those that are in difficulties and also being confident strategic partners with the government. We should be seeking to build a relationship with the government in which the church's skills and qualities and value is recognised because I always believe that the church has a unique contribution to make within society and the church is the biggest part of society we're at a time now where there's more church buildings than there are pubs and the church has in my opinion also the most effective organisational structure to manage volunteers and deliver services on the ground for people so I think This new levelling up agenda definitely needs clarity, but within certain elements of the report, I think we have to understand our role within it and be prepared to be confident strategic partners that remember our mission and understand that we are in covenant with the government and not in a contract with the government. We're looking and building a relationship working towards common goals.
0: Thanks so much for listening to April's episode of Faith in Politics podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at FIP underscore podcast and Instagram at Faith in Politics podcast. See you next month. Bye.
3: Father God, we thank you that your vision for family and community is not one restricted by blood or birth, but instead one that makes a seat at the table for each and every person and calls them home. We lift up to you our country. And we thank you that it is made up of such unique individual and diverse parts, each with their own communities, cultures, and specialities. We lament to you the regional inequalities and disparities that have enabled some communities to flourish while others have suffered. We lament to you postcode lotteries, unequal access to healthcare, financial and job-based lack of access. We thank you that are not a God that picks favourites, but instead one that wants each unique part to flourish to enable the whole to be the best it can be. We thank you that your kingdom is not one focused on financial goals or monetary outcomes, but instead on a vision of human flourishing in which we are at one with each other, and most importantly, at one with you. We ask you that you would help us to live that vision out in our own communities to bring restoration where there is division, peace where there is conflict, and hope where people are hopeless. We ask that you would come alongside our leaders and enable them to have a vision for our country that is not restricted by worldly goals of financial prosperity alone, but instead sees the flourishing of each individual person as a critical priority. We thank you for your vision of a kingdom with no pain or hurting, where we each have enough and we ask that you would help us in each and every day to bring some of that kingdom into our own communities. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.